Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How are you now? Broadcasting from the VFS studios in Sydney. You are listening to the all-new Bib Show, Season 6, Episode 3. Almost the last one of the year. We've got a couple of crackers ahead for you, though. We're not done yet for 2022. There's still a little bit left to give. Don't forget, hit subscribe, rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder, all the financial information, if there is any, in this podcast is generally nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. That's me. If you want to talk to me, then go ahead and do it. My name is James Wheel, and I'm the investment manager of VFS Group. Paul Colgan is back from Davos, really, really enjoying uh, that company. He's got stuck outside and his key card doesn't work. We're hoping that he'll make it into the office soon. The episode is being recorded in Sydney on the 25th of uh, November, 2022 AD. Now, kids, to cast your mind back, the year was 2020, and a small group of well-meaning men huddled up and recorded to put a podcast together to try and explain what was going on and how to navigate it successfully. Our fourth guest of that first season of the podcast was one of the most controversial that we've had. And uh, I don't think we've been able to match it since taking over, since I took over the show. However, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to try for it. I don't think we need to really do it because actually if you listen back to that one, you go, that one actually wasn't as controversial as, as everyone thought it was at the time. And I'm just going to repeat the intro that we did then um, and and see if there's been any amendments to it. So just bear with me, please, if, uh, for our guests can just in, indulge me on this one. Uh, as Paul Colgan read it, uh, a BA in uh, Econ and Law Ethics from Yale, PhD in Econ from the University of Maryland. Her work spans social influence, behavioural economics, corruption and Aussie policy, named Young Economist of the Year by the Economic Society of Australia in 2019. Uh she runs a podcast called The Economist, or at least she did back in 2020. Uh, it is Professor Gigi Foster from the University of New South Wales. Dr. Foster, Professor Foster, how are you now? I'm great, James. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, let's recap. Now, I, as much as I hate the sound of my voice, I actually had to bear with <laughs> at least half of it uh, to listen back to the one that we did in 2020. Your I mean, it was it was pretty spot on that that the overreaction that we had to COVID was was that, and I, I ask all of our guests to do so. I'm just going to leave it. Let, let's just open it up. The first question that Colgo asked you of that one was was, and I'll quote: "Did he actually said did past tense the lockdowns for coronavirus go too far?" That was in June 2020. Can yep. we just start with unpacking that? I'm just going to let you go. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, obviously, it's been such a wild ride. And we know what's happened since then. We've had uh, even more lockdowns after that point. Obviously, I was hopeful as well that it was over. But I saw a lot of writing on the wall and was sort of wondering, puzzling out why were we still seeing the madness? I think it was around that time that I started to think about the possibility that it was more than just fear and temporary insanity, that we were going to be dealing with these 
policies for a long time. So I was very keen to get out the message that this was wrong. This was the wrong way. So that's why I, I was quite controversial at the time. I was mm. going everywhere saying, hey, this is an overreaction. We need to not do this. Partly, I guess it was, you know, instinctual, but it was more I, I kind of coalesced on the idea after another couple of months that that we had this herd that had formed, this crowd that had formed around the COVID obsession. And that was the thing that that perpetuated the madness, as you know, into 2021. And even now in 2022, we still see a lot of people possessed by various aspects of the madness, you know, wearing masks in their car, driving alone kind of thing, you know. Um, and, and kids who have learned the bad habits that have come with the last couple of years of disrupted schooling and, and business closures and not being able to see their friends and uh, general stress and anxiety. These things do not breed good, confident, happy, joyful people. They, they breed scared, miserable, depressed, meaning, you know, meaning looking, looking people looking for meaning who don't have it. Um, and so all of that was very troubling to me. I didn't foresee all of it at the time, but I could tell it was wrong. Uh, yeah. So, and I've, of course, since that time, I've written two books. The first one uh, with Paul Friders and Michael Baker entitled The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. That came out in September of 2021. And then just most recently with Sanjeev Sablock, I've written a cost-benefit analysis of Australia's lockdown policies, which I was hoping the government would write, but of course it didn't come to the party. So we wrote it and it's called Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? Um, and that is with Connor Court Press that came out, as I say, about a month ago. So both of those have uh, been, you know, bringing with me as I go from interview to speech to keynote to address to podcast to all over the country. Now, everybody wants to talk to me, of course, now because it looks like I wasn't as far off as, it, as people seemed to think that I was in mid 2020. That's uh, I, I think you were correct. I, I also think that there was a lot of people. We'll get to your book in a second because I, I know that that's 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 actually sort of why. I want I want to do talk about that because I think there's going to be more of this sort of thing that's going to go forward, especially since the the die has been cast on this sort of thing. But the yeah. I, I think that there was a lot of the the sense that okay, we've done the lockdown that was supposed to stop the spread, that was supposed to sort of flatten the curve, as everyone said. Um, but just that that ongoing two years, do you think that the and we'll we'll talk? So this will lead us into the book conversation. But do you think that there's a feel that that sort of people did this to themselves? Huh. <laughs> well, I, I think that is the reality. Um, is there a feel of that? No, I think right now what, what I'm feeling anyway is that there is a humongous amount of pressure to memory hold the whole thing. Um, because psychologically, it's it's very confronting to admit that you you either were part of something that was extremely damaging or you were manipulated into uh, doing things that were very much against your and, and your children's and your parents' and your friends' best interests by people in power in positions of expert authority. Um, so those are very shocking things for a person to admit. So from the mainstream side, I have seen mainly, well, it's exemplified by that Emily Oster article in The Atlantic recently. A few About the amnesty. Yeah, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. This idea, it's, it's almost as if there's an analogy being drawn to somebody who wakes up after a a drunken binge of you know festivities and and has a head headache and is sort of well I, I think I might have done some bad things maybe I killed one or two people might have raped a couple but you know what let's just move on you know <laughs> and that's just that's puerile right? I, I I find but it is kind of the reaction of someone who's waking up a bit in shock and not knowing how to handle that shock and and how to reckon with their own actions during this period so I think we're going to have a period of many months maybe years of real psychological confrontation. 
for it's, those it's, people who are complicit, not just the people who are victims, but the people who actually did the doing. Well, I, I think that it's phenomenal too in Victoria. It, it, and Victoria was, I mean, far and away the worst of the, of the lockdowns. It wasn't just border closures. It was actually some pretty suppressive tactics that were used by that, by that government of the day, which is still the government of today. And it looks like after tomorrow we'll, we'll continue to be the government of Victoria as well. That's, is, I, I mean, obviously the opposition is, is, is absolute basket case in Victoria, so don't worry about that. But, but do you think that the, the ongoing endorsement says more about well i don't even know where to, where, where to go with that one let's, let's well, well, I mean, no you're going in the right direction because what you're trying to do i think is pick what where actually is the pulse of the australian population right now are they still actually um tethered to this narrative that they were sold are they still psychologically committed to it or are they actually ready to say no and to actually start a reckoning with their politicians, with their masters, with the people in authority, the supposed experts who tyrannized them during this period, um, to to try to promote reconciliation and healing and moving forward uh, together. And and I honestly think it, it's it's a good place to look to the polls. You look and see who gets elected. And certainly during the 2020 and 2021 period, those politicians who were going super hard on all the lockdown and you know control based rituals, they got elected with landslides and reelected with landslides. You know, Dan Andrews yeah. certainly. But also Mark McGowan, um, these people, and, and in fact, even Gladys Berejiklian left because of supposedly something else. It wasn't that she got pulled out, you know. It was so, it was absolutely something else. She's at, she lives yeah. a, a few streets away from me here, and and it was it was bring her back. She'll be fine. It's okay. It's just like no, that was some pretty bad what? stuff that happened, guys. Like yeah, exactly. Like, but she exactly. saved she saved us. And well, and 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 when Don Perrette came in, I think he also was able to make a bit more of a even fresher. Um, you know, than 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 anybody else could because he was new. You know, and so that kind of helps, I think, to to get New South Wales out of the madness more quickly than some of the other states. But I was just in in Western Australia. I was actually on ABC Perth uh, radio, and my goodness, the vitriol towards what I was saying was still very strong. I mean, this emotive rejection, and you know, she shouldn't be talking. She doesn't have any right to have an opinion about anything medical because she's you know she's a, a, an economist. Um, you know, is she a Trump supporter? And you know, she's just a you know crazy basket case. You shouldn't be giving her a platform. That stuff still comes out over yeah. there so you know i think it's going to take a while and i think we're not ready yet no australia isn't at that place yet unlike other regions some regions of the world you know COVID's totally over i mean most places in europe now um certainly northern europe they're, they're they've moved on uh, i wish we could but you know it'll be a little while yet i think well and let's go into the book now so some of the key themes that, that come out of this one i haven't had a chance to pick it up yet and i'm probably going to get one that get it this afternoon it's out now isn't it yes so, um, okay. so the, the lockdown cba yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So what are the key themes out of that? So the cost, basically cost-benefit analysis, right? I think yeah, in the- it's a cost-benefit analysis of Australia's lockdowns and border closures. And I, I wrote a kind of a draft four-pager that we expanded to form the book. I wrote that back in 2020, August 2020, and, and it was something I submitted to the Victorian Parliament, to their um, Parliamentary Accounts and Estimates Committee when I addressed them. And at that time, naively, I was I was still thinking that you know, they had just forgotten to do the thing that policies always have to be subjected to, which is to evaluate them, you know, and, and that this is the way they need to evaluate the lockdown policy. And they should just do that. And now that, you know, I'd reminded them that somehow they would go ahead and do that. Of course, that was so naive, but um, it didn't happen. And so I was waiting, obviously, for another year or more and still nothing. And so I decided with the help of Sanjeev, who Sanjeev used to work for the Victorian Treasury. He's an economist himself as well. But 
in mid mid 2020, he was speaking out against what the state was doing and the treasury didn't like that very much. So they parted ways. So Sanjeev was sort of looking for some work. And I thought, great, you know, you know exactly how these cost benefit analyses typically get written, which they do about any number of policies that governments embark upon or are considering embarking upon within within governments all around the Western world. And so he helped me to put together this expanded and enhanced version of the cost benefit analysis where we we take we have to have a counterfactual. What would have happened if we hadn't had lockdowns? So for that, we take Sweden and also another an alternative collection of uh, other low restrictions countries from overseas. And we look at what their outcomes were. In terms of COVID and we uh, we population adjust and say, well, that's plausibly the amount that we could have potentially lost here in Australia if we had had those kinds of similar policies, which, by the way, were in line with our pre-2020 pandemic management plans, which never called for wholesale lockdowns of whole healthy populations to fight a respiratory virus. Um, and then we actually go through all of the various categories of costs that the lockdowns and border closures imposed on Australia. And as you can imagine, there are a number of those categories. Uh, we do our best. You never know perfectly, you know, when you're doing these kinds of analyses, you never have perfect information. So we estimate some things, but we do our best using the data that we've got. The biggest ca cost categories are actually, the first is uh, the colossal amount of debt that's been accumulated. And the fact that that will have to be paid off means we will have to crowd out future expenditure on everything that makes life longer and better. So, you know, education, health, infrastructure, you name it, you know, any government expenditure category gets cut. We're just going to be poorer, so we won't be able to afford as much. And secondly, the direct mental health costs of locking people in their homes away from their friends and in a stressed state, not getting as much exercise, uh, closing their businesses so they don't have a place to work. All those things naturally cause people ha to have stress and that should count. That's pain. And so those two big categories uh, amount to the to the majority, the vast majority of the costs of the lockdowns. But there are others, too, such as taking kids out of school, crowded out health care for other things, um, you know, so the, a, ra a range of different costs. And so at the end, the headline result is that our estimates being generous to lockdowns indicate that lockdowns have cost us 68 times what they could plausibly have delivered in terms of benefits. That's an extraordinary number. That's I, I, I don't know if it sounds right or if it doesn't sound right. I've got no, nothing to judge it against because it was the first time that's actually been done at that sort of scale. The, yeah. the, the inflationary pressure that's coming out now is also one that's uh, to be factored in. The fact that, that mm -hmm. so much free money was distributed and that having that was obviously going to put an inflation spike up. The big they said it was just, it was going to be transitory. It obviously yeah. wasn't. I said it wasn't going to be either. Yeah. And I was widely, widely slammed for that too. I know how you feel to be out there. <laughs> Dr. Foster, it's tough to be out there. I mean, I, it, it didn't go to the extent that, um, I mean, a current affair didn't. It, you always know when they want to portray someone as being evil and popular. <laughs> when, they, when, when they show someone walking in slow motion, that's, <laughs> that's, how, that's how they portray someone to be evil. It's just like, this woman wants to kill your grandpa. It was I know, like, I know. Um, know and it was so just terrible. like, okay, that's a and bit far. I know. Maybe I shouldn't have worn red and black. That was kind of the witch theme a little bit. And probably my accent doesn't help. You know, people think of, you know, American women sometimes as being kind of bitches on wheels. And so that maybe that doesn't help. But honestly, ask my best friends and my family. I am the most loving person that, you know, you could imagine. R truly. This, is, this has been my motivation. I just love the country and I love people. And I hate to see this amount of pain being inflicted for, for just stupid reasons, for nothing that we can credibly claim is, is going to be worth it. And 
you know, it's not that COVID isn't a thing. Obviously it is, but it's just one part of what health is all about. And and to see that loss of perspective during that time, it pained, pained me in the heart, you know? And so I felt I had to use my platform to try to argue for it. And I'm just lucky to be a little bit, I, get, I don't know, what's the word? Like, resilient or resistant to social pressure, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah, so, you got to have rubber skin. Honestly. Yeah, so I was yeah. like, okay, well, when you call me a, a neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior, it says more about you than it does about me. You know, if you're going to call a fellow person that name, that moniker, then you have some serious internal reckoning to, to do, my friend, you know, and so that was always my internal attitude about it. And I guess it didn't really get to me, you know, and I, I was very lucky to have the support of all my family and, um, and, and good colleagues, obviously, like my co-authors on my books, uh, to, to, you know, sanity check and support and just try to laugh about it a little bit, because otherwise you'd cry. Yeah, and, and there's a lot to cry about. There still is a lot to cry about, because we still haven't seen the full ramifications of it. And I, I want to talk about ramifications in a second. But just talking about that, you mentioned Trump as well. And I know that you've done a lot on, on behavioral, the, the behavioral side of things that the the fact that that the Americans made it such a polarizing issue about if you're on this side, then you wear a mask, and if you're on the other side, then you don't. And we know that you're like there, there were people who were Republicans saying that we we don't want to wear a mask because we don't want our friends thinking that we vote Democrat. And yeah. it, it, it's just okay, you're insane. And yeah, like, well, but th- but this is the modern world right now. We have really lost the ability to appreciate that people who have different beliefs are still worthy of being included in our social circles and our ideas of, you know, what would be a plausible approach to a problem. We we literally that's what cancel culture is. It's saying if you don't agree with me in terms of beliefs that I think are important right now, then I reject you as a human being. It's appointing the bone. You know, it's a collective ostracism. And that makes us so stupid as societies and even as people, individual people. You know, when you stop challenging yourself and you yeah. stop challenging your beliefs, you become dumb. You, you you stop thinking, basically. You just entrench yourself. You know, you get lazy and and you, you basically just sink into this non-progress-oriented you know, um, kind of luxurious feel-good state where everything is short-term and, and you're not able to really face future crises or challenges because you've, you've you know, excised all of the interesting, different, creative, innovative ideas from your circle because they're all can- cancelled, right? And, th- th- that's, that's, and that's correct. That's, that is where we're going and that's where we're heading. And as more people say that social media and the platforms that there are where everyone is now communicating, mm-hmm. that, that they have more control and they get regulated and they've got to actually now do this on behalf of people of governments, which is it's it's, it's yeah. infuriating in that direction, but mm-hmm. you're also in the in the name of trying to protect people. There's uh, there's an, an expression which it, it may be someone's, it probably is, but I'm just going to hack it myself and say that mm-hmm. it's something that I just made up. But obviously, that the truth and your beliefs should not fear the daylight, and that's yes. that's something that I, we have lost the ability to to hear someone else's point of view on something and bring it up into the light and go, you know what, I'm going to d- dismiss it. It means that I, I may think less of you because I've held it up to the light and I think that you're wrong on this one, which makes you probably, you know, I, I could think less of you. But there's no reason why I should dismiss you as a, as a human being. I, exactly. I, can, I, I can think you're a dumbass by all yep, means. And that's, perfectly, and that's your right. You can say, yeah. look, I just think you're wrong. That's totally yeah. fine. There is actually one organization in Australia that's trying to do that. And I was just speaking with them a few days ago up in Brisbane. It's called the Brisbane Dialogues. You may yep. be aware, your listeners might be interested. It's As far as I know, it's the only uh, Australia-based kind of um, organization that's explicitly and, and violently politically independent that is trying to elevate the quality of public dialogue across the aisles of various sorts on issues of social import. So they had a 
dialogue on how to manage the next pandemic. I was a panelist, as were uh, three other people, and then there was also a moderator. And we definitely disagreed with our with each other about what should have been done. And we were able to respectfully discuss that issue. And th- that was that was honestly the first time that in public. I've been able to, um, you know, have that conversation with people who are on the other side, because during this whole COVID period, numerous times, either, you know, I've been brought on as the token Christian in a bunch of lions to be devoured, you know, like on ABC Q&A, for example, which is really just, you know, and that's just a playing gotcha kind of thing. Or when we've actually suggested that there be a long form discussion to people who are on the other side, they have refused to come on with me. So there's been basically no opportunity to truly get into those issues that, you know, the, the complexity and the, the density of the, the problems that we were dealing with during this time and how we could have handled it differently and what actually happened after what we did and how we should see the whole thing, like with this crowd dynamic that I mentioned to you. Um, so I was really gratified that the dialogues were able to put that event on and they're hoping to do another series of or you know, continuing series of discussions about pandemic policy over the coming months, uh, maybe a year or so all over Australia. So, uh, you know, hopefully Hopefully watch the space. Hopefully there'll be more even in this state where we can have those kinds of conversations. Well, I would I would look forward to going to Brisbane, except Brisbane is on my do not go to list because it's in Queensland. So Queensland and Western <laughs> Australia have to do a lot to get back in my good books after what they did during COVID. Uh, talking about long term, now you mentioned the next pandemic. Hmm. Also, I will, I'll make a link to the Brisbane Dialogues on the website too so that uh, people can sure. go and find out what it's all about because I really enjoy that sort of stuff as well. We need to be having these conversations. Yeah. The long term and going forward, China now sort of going in the economic side of things. I, I, I was saying I was loud and proud, and it's okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's sort of you know what we're all we're all human and we're all sort of in this mm-hmm. game. But the I was saying that after the the uh, the Chinese the Communist Party Congress that was on just recently, that after that and Z presidency, uh, you know, consolidating his power with you know a, a, an indefinite t- term. Mm-hmm. Next president, that, that COVID zero would start to be unwound, mm. um, vaccination rates, and that they would start to change these things. A lot of banks were saying that as well. So, I mean, it wasn't just me that was out there on my own mm. on the mm. precipice on this one. They have not done that yet. No. And, no. in fact, it looks like it's getting – it's not only the case numbers at records. Um, don't worry about death counts because we know that there's no way that only one person has died this week from COVID in China. I think yeah, you, exactly, yeah. But uh, yeah, re- the, data are, the data are very sus, yes. <laughs> very, very sus, which has always been the case in China anyway, so there's no surprises there, <laughs> economic or otherwise. But the, uh, when, do, do you think that China is potentially good? Like, when does that change for China? What, what's, yeah. what... Well, so, yeah, China is such an interesting case in this whole thing because they, of course, they started the whole lockdown mania, right, with locking down Wuhan. And I think that really committed them, because of the way that that Chinese culture and the, and the politics there work, it committed them to this sort of approach indefinitely, you know, ad infinitum, whenever they have a, an upsurge that can't be hidden or squashed or, or you know, swept under the rug. So the lockdowns of Shanghai and Beijing uh, were in some sense, if anything, just a, a proving ground for the local politicians to show how, how, how high their allegiance was to the party. Because in China, you know, you can't, you can't be seen to go against the party leaders, right? The party leaders must not be ever depicted as having potentially been wrong. It's this, it's this, you know, extreme fanatical orientation towards what you were talking about earlier, not being able to be seen as somebody who made a mistake, right? And that's how the whole the whole system has functioned during the COVID period. And they just cannot walk it back for political face reasons. And you say this and, you know, as a Westerner, you're like, oh, yeah, OK, but that's just face. You know, what about the reality? What about the actual economics? What about the fact that they're destroying themselves? You know, 
Well, that doesn't matter to a point. It just doesn't. I mean, this is a country that had the Cultural Revolution, right? I mean, they, they, millions of people have died by the hand of policies that have been pursued for just completely political, face-saving reasons um, that were ideologically oriented and about making sure that people couldn't disagree. And then what happened at the very, very end, when there's enough destruction that's finally happened, is that the story changes slightly somehow to somehow protect the face, right? So it's a change in the political message, just a pivot so that they, they find a way somehow to make it such that there can be a plausible argument that the party really has always been right, but we're still going to go in this different direction now because now, now this is the right thing for some other reason. Yeah. That's, that is what I expect. It's very kind of Orwellian really. Um, it, you know, it, the party yeah. is right about whatever until such time as the party wants to change its mind. And, and in which case then the party is right again, right? That's what's up what they would like as a, as a, as a political face. Um, and, and that's unfortunately, of course, we followed the lockdown thing. And to a certain extent, the, the Western politicians as well became beholden to that whole narrative as well, which is one of the reasons I was pushing for a new political narrative here, as, you know, 18 months ago, because we could have done it. We could have pivoted in that way and said, oh, you know, well, we tried the best we could with the data at the time, but now we know more and now we're just going to go out of this. And that would have saved so many lives. And, and we didn't do that. It did. But I think that we're in the we're in the world where if you change, people don't understand that. If the facts change, I change. What do you do, sir? You know that beautiful quote that everyone everyone uses. Exactly, but exactly. Yeah. That, that now people don't accept that. I know this. I know this from a financial perspective. That if all of a sudden I'm just like, you know what? I don't like this stock or this ETF or I don't like this market anymore. And people mm-hmm. say, ah, you got it wrong. It's just like no. It's it, literally stuff has changed. The narrative it doesn't stay the same the entire way through. And That's right. We it's it's potentially it's all of our fault maybe and. Uh, I hate to be the guy that's blaming the media, but that the whole gotcha thing that that the media has become famous for, and also people in in response as well, has become a little bit a little bit too much. It stopped it stopped the ability for people to say, you know, what, we've got some new data, we've got some new some new facts here. We need to, and and this is the way that we need to go, because then all of a sudden it's oh he's flip flopping, he doesn't mm-hmm. change, he can't make his mind up or anything like that. It's like no, that's what leadership. Looks- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's very true. That's very true. And I think it comes in a sense that kind of obsession with the sticking to it at all costs comes from, in part, maybe an insecurity or a a sort of lack of vision of what leadership really is and and what what authority and good governance really look like. 
Um, and and because we've lost that model in Australia, I think, and, and a lot of places in the world, they're struggling to understand what a real leader looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, some of the best leaders that I see right now in the world are actually in the resistance. <laughs> you know, they're, they're people who are playing from their heart. They're prepared to be wrong, but they are you know, putting it all on the line, sacrificing their careers, their their reputation to do what they think is right. And they're making the actions that they think will save the most lives. I mean, if that's not heroism, what is? Yeah, it's very well said. Very well said. Uh, what's your most controversial view at the moment? External? I mean, what else are you sort of doing that's ex, uh, ex-COVID at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> Ex-COVID. Well, I tell you what, I'm doing an awful lot that is got me. I'm doing about an average of one interview or podcast or event or something per day. So that's that's kind of a lot of stuff. Um, I am also working on some uh, experiments in relation to power, because one of the things that should be clear after this couple of years is we need to study power more. We need to get a better understanding of it and we need to incorporate that understanding into our education for our kids. I'm also interested in in trying to develop some uh, alternative education uh, modules, systems uh, that people can sort of download if they're interested in trying to take their kids out of school. And how how can that, um, you know, what can they follow that would actually have been vetted by uh, sensible people who, you know, using enlightenment thinking and, you know, principles of classic liberalism. Uh, and I see that in other places as well. There's um, there's a new book series, or not that new, but somewhat new, called The Tuttle Twins, which has been written by people just fed up with the kind of literature that's been produced, you know, particularly recently for their small children. Um, and it's, you know, it essentially teaches how societies work, but to small children, right, using the kinds of tools that work there. I think that's a very exciting area. Uh, and, and I've always done research on, on education policy pretty much ever since I got out of graduate school. So I'm always interested in education. Yeah. Uh, and I've also done some time use uh, studies of uh, what's happens during COVID in uh, universities. And so sort of busy writing that up now to the extent that I have extra time, but also just doing my teaching. You know, I'm, I'm, I'd actually like to just be a regular research and teaching academic again after, you know, some period of time, whenever I can get back to it. I was not planning this sort of two years of you know, wild ride in the media and a lot, so much engagement. Um, but I'd also really like to get some people from my department back able to talk to me about this stuff because at the moment, and this is not just in my department, but throughout economics uh, in Australia, we've really had a, we haven't had yet a, a real reckoning with what happened. And there was an awful lot of bullying and pillorying within the profession. And I have a paper just about that, which we're, uh, I think about to get accepted. And that I hope will be the start of a conversation within the academy. And probably other professions need to have that conversation too, saying, uh, okay, here, here is a table on which we can put the pain of this period. You can say, you bullied me. You were, uh, you know, you ad hominem attacked me when I was simply making points that in 2019 would have been self-evident. And, you know, you need to acknowledge that and have the other side look at that and acknowledge it and uh, and be able to maybe apologize. It would be nice, but I'm not really holding my breath for that. But just to be able to start that process, right? because we need to work together as a profession going forward. I don't want to be constantly seen as the, you know, the, the out, outcast or, you know, outlier economist, which I kind of am still. So I'd like to have some healing there as well. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. I, I think that for as much as the people who who were who were wrong. In, in what they did are still where they are. I don't think the apology is going to be coming anytime soon, although it would be nice. Um, <laughs> and there was a few things. I mean, I, I, I've sort of put I've put it behind me as well. I wasn't really that far out on the ledge, but apparently, I mean, I, I went out there saying that interest rates going to 4 or 5% mm-hmm. was a possibility in this year, and I, I was just slammed left, right, and centre from anyone, anyone with, as an economist, just absolutely body slammed me for that, and it made me. It did actually. It did actually make me because I'm not. 
you know, I'm not I'm not an economist at, at a big bank. I'm not, you know, I'm not that guy. I'm just a simple, I'm just a simple, just a simple innocent man. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it sort of it, it did detriment me a little bit. I don't think I'm going to get an yeah. apology from anyone, but that's the game. That's just sort of what, that's where it is. You say stuff and, and you eat it. However, in in education, at a university level, that should be a sin. Yes. Well, I, I feel I have felt this whole time that part of our responsibility as uh, economists who are funded by the state, by the way, right, by the society of taxpayers is to provide guidance and, and engagement and insight about Australian policy on behalf of those taxpayers. We are we are we have a duty to that. That's a part of our professional job. And unfortunately, in economics over the last 30 years or so, it's become very, very siloed into hyper specialized areas where you get people making whole careers on just studying the properties of one type of game, you know, and, and what happens in that game and how many equilibria are there and what if we enhance it slightly this way or that way. And this is, you know, a game that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on reality at all. And it's not that blue sky research isn't valuable, but it's just the, the, the scale of the loss of the ability to comment intelligently on whole of society policy is staggering. And and I think that's another thing that fed in here is a lot of people simply weren't competent to actually understand what was happening because they had been led by their education and their career incentives to hyper-specialize so greatly that their brains were no longer really thinking about the big picture on an everyday basis. And and, and you see this even overseas when people who have, have become specialists and even gotten Nobel Prize for their specialties are then assumed to know something about the rest of the world and they can be seduced into giving commentary on you know big policy issues that they really don't have any expertise in, but they're branded as an expert. Yeah. Well, are they really an expert on that broad picture? Not really. They're kind of an expert on whatever they got the Nobel Prize for, you know? So, so that, that is a real problem and not just in economics, but in science as a whole. And, and that's another thing that I, I hope to make some progress on in future, but that's a, a real cultural shift issue. And, um, and of course involves some kind of institutional change. And there's a number of suggestions for institutional change in the great COVID panic that uh, I've also been blogging about more uh, with my co-authors, Paul Fighters and Michael Baker on the Brownstone Institute website. I definitely recommend that website to your readers or your listeners because- You've got to send me these links. It's, it's, I yeah, can't yeah, it's, You're talking so fast. It's all right. Yeah. I know, I know. It's easy. It's brownstone.org and they put up logs about all different areas of and aspects of the COVID period and, and what we need to do going forward. And so I do expect I'll probably be involved in- um, you know, some of the rebuilding that needs to happen uh, after this period. And there's a number of different irons in the fire on that one. Excellent. Now, I, uh, just sort of crystal balling this one, you know, the, the, the biggest irony would be that as a, as a people that the next pandemic picks up or the next big thing picks up and we decide to completely ignore it and not do enough. <laughs> and yeah. You can see that happening, can't you? I don't think it's likely because I think there's so many people now who are really just looking for the next way to continue to exert their power so they don't lose it. And and that that is the natural human reaction. So I think the, the you know not taking power at a time of crisis is almost unheard of. If you can take power, you do. And you always just say, oh, this time it's different. You know, you know that phrase, right? That that's always what's bandied about. You know, okay, well, COVID, we we uh, you know we locked down, whatever. Maybe it was a mistake, but this time, look at those numbers. This look at that projection. See, it's different, and, and that will be the way it goes. And then, the, and then, always have to find an enemy, and that sometimes, yep. uh, sometimes, that's, those are individuals. Um, well, it was an entire country for a very long time, and that's, um, you know, I, I think the relationships, relations with China. Well, it's difficult to sort of, we're not going to go down that path, we don't have the time. Um, now, Dr. Foster or Gigi or Professor or whatever it is, uh, to take your pick on that one. Uh, how can people get their hands on this book? 
Uh, so you can buy The Great COVID Panic on Amazon. That's an easy one. And yeah. for do lockdowns and border closures serve the greater good, just go to Connor Court Press, uh, their website, and you can order it from there. I am on that website right now, as there is, and I'm going to get that in my uh, basket. I'm going to link all this to the website as well, everything that you've said as well. I'm, I'm actually also on Sanjeev's blog. Oh, yeah. Uh, Great. Sanjeev Sablock's blog there. Uh, it's staunch libertarian, I'm noticing here as well. He is a bit of a, of a libertarian, yes. Right? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, all okay. of us all in the resistance, I think, have, have streaks of libertarianism because that was part of what we reacted against with all the authority coming down. But but many people are really disaffected lefties or or disaffected righties, you know, from, from particular camps, and they just realize, look, we just can't be so uh, obsessive about whatever it is that, that determines that side of politics. We have to be more in the center. We have to be more welcoming. welcoming. We have to be more tolerant of other people. And uh, and kind of more hands off about the way the government does things, which I think is great. I mean, that's that is kind of where we are at the moment in, in, in the West. The governments have overreached so much that the only really rational path is to try to move towards a system of more dissemination of power rather than you know working against basically the concentration of power that has led to so much destruction uh, as party to so much destruction during this period. And, and again, there's a number of ideas about how to do that. And I'd encourage your listeners to get involved at the local community level. There's so many different new resistance organizations popping up all over the place you can be part of them you can put your hands to the wheel and, and work together for a for a brighter better kind of uh, future institution uh set for australia and for your kids yeah well said well said I, i've i've had a little bit to do with the libertarian organiz- uh movement now for a while it's mm. sort of something that i inherited just just going through uh the biggest difficulty with the libertarian movement is trying to organize them you know why exactly oh yeah all li- that's the thing all all libertarians, so- <laughs> <laughs> i know exactly. it's like, like herding cats yeah. yeah, it is like training cats. And, and this is the thing, you know, if you get the disaffected lefties, they, they also understand that there is a role for government. There is a role for coordination. The, the problem is that when you coordinate people and you concentrate the power of those people into a too small number of hands, right, too few hands, then you have a problem. So yeah. what you need to do is work out ways to, to retain the voice and power of the actual citizens that are, that are coordinating together in the decisions that are made. So for that reason, we, for example, talked about citizen juries appointing leaders of our bureaucracies as one of the antidotes that one could imagine, you know, one of the small all uh, changes to our institutions going forward that would react, uh, you know, to this concentration of power and the abuse of power that we've seen. But there are a number of other kinds of um, sort of direct democracy kinds of initiatives that I think would also be very helpful. And so that, you know, figuring that out, puzzling that out, what will work in Australia, what actually suits our communities, that's that's the job of the next few years. Not bad at all. Uh, finally, uh, Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Ah. Thank it you, is, and to you. I understand you're making, you're having your turkey today. We had ours late yesterday. I'm having my tur- <laughs> my turkey my turkey day is on Sunday, believe it or not. So oh, nice. I do mine later. Which it's a good good chance to try and drag the family in and some friends around the place, drink some Budweiser, and watch the uh, watch the college football. So it's all pretty good. I've got yeah, uh, very good. Well, very what, happy to know that we had a lovely family Thanksgiving as well. So that's a lovely tradition to be able to maintain here. And uh, hello to all the American expats. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving as well. Yeah, that's right. Did you get some turkey? Uh, how did you how did you prepare your turkey. Oh yeah, always roast the turkey, always roast it. I actually baked the pumpkin the day before. I had to get my partner to bake it because I was flying back from Brisbane and uh, then we got the flesh out and then we made the pumpkin. I made the pumpkin pie and the cranberry sauce in the morning and then the turkey went in with the stuffing and then made cauliflower cheese, green beans, sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes. I think that was it. Oh and then, yeah, some whipped cream for the pumpkin pie. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got to try. I've never done pumpkin pie before so that's my everyone the, the tradition that I've got along with what drinking Budweiser and watching the game is mm. Uh, I do the turkey, but everyone brings a side. 
So I've had a oh, couple yeah, of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it does ease my, because I can't cook, as everyone knows. I mean, so, so that's, um, that's what it's going. The one thing, I've got, I set a really low benchmark of just not killing my family. That's the benchmark. <laughs> and if, if I... If I can get if I can get through that, I'm absolutely winning the day, and it's okay. Which means, which and since I'm on turkey duty, I mean that's I'm running a hot, pretty high risk game. So it's. Uh, so, anyway. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, no, it, it, the, the irony of getting through two years of lockdown just to be killed by uh, by a family member is uh, just <laughs> accidentally accidentally by eating some pink, some not some not cooked turkey, or something else. But look, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my give it my all and do my best uh, at this one and see how we go. But it's it's a good little tradition that we've got, and people need this. We need these sorts of things. So we uh, do. We do. Yeah, yep. a chance to get people together. Now, I'm looking forward to go uh, catching up with you, getting a beer in um, like we did two years ago, yep. and um, I'll do that. I'm also looking forward to getting you back on the show too um, after that, okay? And yeah, terrific. It's great to be on, James, and uh, good luck with you. And, 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 I, and you know, I think it's great that you're continuing this podcast and more new media channels are always better. So, yeah, go for it. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Foster. Uh, now I'm going to wrap it up. You can... Oh, I've already done. Oh, there's, there's the wrap up. It's done. No, we're done. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Yeah, Foster. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, James. Bye. Good on you. Talk to you later. You too. Bye. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at the underscore Bip underscore show and we're on Facebook too. Just search for The Bip Show. I've got a website. Just Google Whelan Capital. It's got all of the links and all of the documents that you want to know. Individually, I am at James Whelan42 on Twitter. The show is produced by whoever I could find on the day. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.